You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. All right. Well, it's an honor to be back with you guys, and it's an honor really to be in the book of Matthew with you this morning. Um, uh, Matthew and I go a long way back. Uh, the, the first, well, it's really the second exposure that I ever had to the Bible was the book of Matthew. I didn't grow up in, in a Christian home, uh, really. And so the, the second time I ever collided with scripture was the book of Matthew. Um, the first time I, I had sort of exposure to scripture was the book of Revelation, I was in seventh grade and decided I needed an easy read, uh, something that made sense. And so I read uh, Revelation cover to cover. I then proceeded to, and this is true, uh, write and illustrate and bind in hardback format a fictional retelling of the book of Revelation, which means... Obviously that uh, I am the original author of Left Behind and, um, and I am sad to inform you that Tim LaHaye and J.B. Jenkins uh, have not had the integrity to pay me up until this point, uh, but uh, that is true that I wrote the OG copy. Uh, but my, my second exposure... Uh, to the Bible was the book of Matthew. I was in seventh grade. Uh, I'm sorry, I, at this point, I would have been in um, the summer before ninth grade and I auditioned for a play and that play was called Godspell. Godspell, if, if you've ever heard of it, uh, it's like a um, 1970s sort of uh, hippie retelling of the book of Matthew. Kind of weird, but I was in it and I played a very lucrative role, character 14, and uh, I, I wore a sailor hat and I had jorts, jean shorts. I wore rainbow suspenders. So things were looking good for me uh, in ninth grade. And uh, my, I was not a Christian at the time, which explains the jorts. And so reading, um, reading Matthew uh, back then as I was sort of engaging with it in this uh, play was uh, was a confusing experience for me. I don't know, um, you know, if you've ever jumped into the Bible, maybe before you were a Christian and tried to make sense of some of the stuff you read, but it was just hard. It was, it was a clumsy. I couldn't really understand. It was kind of felt cryptic and, and I couldn't put it together. It felt unhelpful. And, uh, and so I say that I feel especially grateful this morning to be working with you in the book of Matthew um, because now I get to be doing that on the other side of the cross, you know, um, having seen the beauty uh, that is in this text, having met the, the God man who, who has rescued me and, and given me eyes to see uh, his word. And so I've, I counted a real privilege to get to be navigating the waters of this book with you. And I'm hoping uh, that this morning that God would bring some of the clarity um, that uh, uh, I've gotten to see over the years uh, in this book and in the scripture uh, to us uh, this morning. Um, this particular verse, this moment in the Beatitudes that we're looking at, uh, it's, it's a bit of a tricky one. You know, if, if it's read wrong, it can needlessly um, lead to confusion, I think, and to sort of some, some sideways feelings and understandings uh, about some really important topics. So I want to be careful as we work through this text to, to get it right and to see it clear. So... Um, so with that said, let's, let's talk about where we've been so far. We are in a series uh, that ultimately will be working through the whole Sermon on the Mount, but we're in the Beatitudes right now. And uh, in a way, uh, 
We, you can kind of talk about the Beatitudes like this. Uh, Jesus here in this sermon is outlining um, what a person whose life has collided with the good news of the gospel should look like, should feel like, the, the flavor of it. What, what should that type of person be like? Ronnie said it uh, really helpfully in his first sermon uh, that uh, just like a chapter earlier, Jesus comes onto the scene and he sort of inaugurates the kingdom of God, right? He comes onto the scene and, and he says, it's here. The kingdom has arrived. It's, it's coming now. And then the next moment uh, that we get from Jesus uh, is, is this sermon. Uh, and this sermon is sort of unpacking what the kingdom of God being here now should look like practically. What should people who are living inside of this kingdom, what should they feel like? What should the ethos be of that group of people? Um, you know, and, we, and we learn things like blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That, that this is the door, Jesus says, that sort of swings open into the Christian life, into a, into a kingdom living life. Uh, when a person is confronted with the holiness of God and we see ourselves in light of who he is, uh, we realize something about ourselves. We have a bankruptcy. Whereas before we thought we maybe had a wealth of goodness, now we see we don't, we're bankrupt, we're poor in spirit. And that pushes us to mourn over our sin, right? How far we've fallen from him. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. And we, we begin to see our need for, for righteousness. We feel it like hunger pangs. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. We become people finally who can acknowledge that if we don't get God, we're lost. And it makes us humble to realize that he would come and do the work for us on our behalf. It makes us humble and lowly and meek toward him and toward others. And so blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And, and here we are arriving here in verse seven and, and Jesus is continuing his, his sermon, but he pivots He's making a move here, a shift here. Because up until this point, if you haven't noticed, all of these Beatitudes have generally been sort of seasoned with like an inward focusness, like my relationship with God. The camera is pointed at me and him and that dynamic. And there's a little play out here, but largely it's how does the truth of the gospel impact me in my heart posture, in how I relate to him and to myself, those types of things. And now, and now all of a sudden we're shifting. The camera isn't pointed at us and God per se. The camera is gonna be pointed now at us and people. This idea of blessed, are the merciful has this sort of outward, intentional, horizontal component to it. Now, you see that? Um, this is one of the first moments where we're being told how kingdom living should proactively uh, engage the world around us. And the word that Jesus uses to capture what this engagement is like is this word, mercy. Mercy. When you think about what it looks like for a person within the, the framework of the kingdom of God to engage humanity, it should be this word, mercy. And so here we are in Matthew 5, 7, and the beatitude he presents is this. 
It's only six words in the Greek. And it says this, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Now, before we do anything, uh, we need to define some terms, right? We need to get a sense of what mercy means. Mercy means, forget it. Uh, You know, it was interesting as I was uh, planning this uh, sermon and kind of working through the text, I just kind of was randomly polling people uh, who I interacted with about what the the definition of mercy is. I'm curious when when you think about that, what comes to your mind? Uh, When I asked my my sort of crew of folks, they all across the board gave the same answer. It was super interesting. Everybody said the same thing except one girl. She was like, I I don't know. I was like, I respect that. Uh, But but everybody else said this, and maybe you've heard this before. Uh, They said something like uh, mercy is getting what you don't deserve. I mean, is not getting what you do deserve and grace is getting what you don't deserve, right? Have you heard that before? Mercy is not getting what you do deserve and grace is getting what you don't deserve. And it, was, it was funny to hear that because that's what I was expecting them to say because that's what I've heard in my life. And then I, I do a follow-up question like, well, um, and what were the verses that substantiate that for you? And then that kind of went to crickets, you know? Uh, which I get it. I, you know, nothing came to my mind either, which is fine. It just means that sometimes we adopt sort of like a cultural understanding of things, right? Even within sort of the Christian subculture, but we really need to make sure, is this really what the text is saying? And, and so I don't think it's wrong per se, but I think it's, it's, it captures more than that. If that's all that mercy was, uh, then there'd be some, I think, confusion with some of the moments where that word comes up in scripture. Um, For instance, uh, blind Bartimaeus, right? That Luke 10 moment, I think it is. So Jesus is leaving Jericho with his disciples and Bartimaeus, who's blind, he's sitting on the side of the road and and he hears Jesus and he cries out, right? Uh, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So he cries out for mercy. Now, if our definition is mercy is not getting what you deserve, then the passage should have read something like this. He cried out, Jesus, have mercy on me. And Jesus came over to him and didn't kill him, right? Which would have been a weird way to end that moment with Bartimaeus, I feel like. I'm glad it didn't end like that. It ended with, with something else, right? He's, he said, Jesus, have mercy on me. Jesus comes, and what does he do? He extends something to him. He gives him his sight. So the man gets his sight back and leaves rejoicing. So he was given something that he didn't deserve in that moment, which sounds kind of like grace. And so I'm just, all I'm saying is, uh, I think maybe a more helpful understanding uh, of a definition uh, is in place. So that being said, let me give you what, what, as I'm sort of searching the scriptures on this word, what might be a more helpful, simpler definition for us to work with this morning, okay? Um, and we're gonna, we're, we're gonna say it like this. Mercy is compassion that takes action. That's what mercy is. What is mercy? Mercy is compassion that takes action. It's pity in practice. It's, it's being moved on the inside and then moving on the outside. See that? There's, there's this both and component. There's a feeling and a moving to mercy. These are two sides of that coin of what mercy means. And so let's look at them a little bit more closely. So Mercy both feels and moves. So mercy feels. What, what do we mean by that? What, what, what I mean by that is, 
is mercy isn't just a set of behaviors that I do. It's not just something that I give to other people. It starts with a sentiment, a feeling. In, in the Hebrew, in your Old Testament, the word mercy is um, often, um, there's a word that's translated as mercy and as compassion, but this word is a word, rachum. We've talked about it here before in our Philippian sermon. That word, rachum, which is an amazing word to say, uh, uh, literally translates to womb. You remember this? Which, which means when somebody was talking about uh, feeling compassion or mercy to somebody, or when, when it says uh, in Psalm 145, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in love. When it uses that word mercy or that word rachum, what he's, what he's saying is the Lord's womb is warm for you which is really gross. <laughs> but what is he saying? Well, well again, what does is, what is a womb hold? Holds a baby, right? And so when you're talking about being merciful, having mercy or compassion, what you're saying is, I feel for you that care feeling that a mom feels for her little baby. That's what I'm saying when I'm saying, I have compassion on that person. I have mercy for that person. We're saying, I care for you like, a little, like I would care for my own child. That's what's, that's what's sort of pregnant in that word, no pun intended. But you, you get the idea, right? It's, it's that type of care. Um, and this means something for us. This means that we're not just um, dispassionate kindness dispensers toward people, right? Mercy feels things when it looks on suffering. Mercy, you should feel something when you see what Hurricane Florence and the flooding that's doing there on the East Coast is, is doing to that population of people with, with people displaced from their homes and, and deaths happening and those types of things. You should not just go, we need to do something. You should feel something first. That, that's the proper response of somebody who's exhibiting mercy. And it's a great reminder for us. Christians, we're not just brains, on sticks that walk around, right? We're not just here to learn information. That's not what we're here primarily to do. We're here to, to know him and feel. We're, 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 we're here in this world to see people's plight and feel something. Mercy feels, but mercy doesn't just feel. Mercy moves, Right, So it, it doesn't just feel something, it does something about that feeling, that compassionate, I care for you feeling. When it sees plights of people, it moves. You remember the, the, uh, the parable of the, um, the good Samaritan? So, so the, the Samaritan rolls up on that guy who's been beaten half to death and, and stolen from, everybody else has left him and he's there dead. It says that he had compassion on him. It begins with that. And then what does it say after that? It says in verse 37, he showed him mercy. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring out oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him into the inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and, and whatever you spend, uh, I'll repay when I come back. Mercy is compassion that takes action. He had compassion and then he showed Mercy, mercy is compassion that takes action, which means you and I might have wonderful intentions with all sorts of people, right? 
And you might find yourself crying at every sad commercial that comes on, you know, for these poor kids halfway across the world. But if we do nothing about those feelings, we might have experienced a compassion-like feeling, but we haven't done mercy. We haven't showed mercy. It's a both and. It feels and it moves. Do you see that? It feels and it moves. But it it doesn't just move uh, toward physical suffering, physical need, physical problems. It, It moves toward spiritual suffering, the sin of others who've sinned against us. So there's like a physical and, and a spiritual part to this. And, and the reason we know this is because the Bible tells us. You know, Luke 18, that, that parable of the, uh, the, the tax collector and the Pharisee, uh, they're praying in the temple. The, the end of that says this, the tax collector standing far off, he wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven. He beat his breast saying, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Right, so he's calling for God's mercy because of his spiritual problem. He's a sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the others. So when Jesus is calling us to mercy, he's not just saying be charitable, feel something and be charitable, give to somebody. He's saying it's a call to be quick to forgive those who've wounded you and who sinned against you, who are needing forgiveness. That's sort of baked into this idea of this word mercy. Do you see that? Now, if that's all that Jesus was doing here in Matthew 5, 7, uh, my hunch is we could all leave here feeling pretty good, pretty good about ourselves. If, if all he's doing is communicating the data about what a merciful activity entails, we could all go home going, yeah, okay, mercy feels, I felt things, feel things right now, right? Mercy, uh, mercy moves. You know, my cousin, we've been letting him sleep on our couch for a month. Uh, so I'm doing something there. Mercy, you know, forgives. I've forgiven him for sleeping on my couch for a month. Like uh, we, we can bring to mind moments when we have exhibited mercy, right? That's not a super hard thing for us to do, uh, to think of times that we've been merciful. Uh, But what's interesting here is that's not what Jesus is getting at. He's going deeper than that. Uh, Look at verse seven, because what he's trying to capture is not just a moment of mercy, but an identity of mercy. Verse seven, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. That word is eleemon. It appears only two times in the New Testament. And each time it's talking about an identity. It shows up in Hebrews. Jesus has become our merciful and faithful high priest. This is who Jesus is, right? It's not about doing, it's about isness. Who you are. This is a word not about behaviors so much, but nature. That, that the posture of our heart is one that bends toward others. Like not just the occasional sprinkling of I did something nice for somebody, but in the very core of who we are, our, our deepest proclivities bend toward the good of others, looking out for the needs and sufferings of others and seeking to, to aid those moments. This is an identity statement And this idea would have sent shockwaves through his audience. It is so radical. It would have absolutely disoriented the listeners in Jesus's day. Well, why why is that? Because 
If you were a Jew in the first century, you would have had a radically different worldview from this. What do I mean? Here would have likely been your worldview, uh, the way you saw things uh, in, in sort of first century Judaism. And you tell me if this sounds familiar at all to you. If you're down and out, you must have had that junk coming, right? Now, now why do I think that? Well, the Bible tells us that. The Bible tells us that all the time, that, that uh, the posture of, of this group of people so often was if you were suffering or afflicted or in trouble or whatever, you should see that as an expression of God's judgment on your life for past wrongs committed. It's all over the place. Think about John 9. Do you remember this moment? Uh, Jesus, is, uh, Jesus and his crew, they roll up on uh, another blind man and his disciples, they, they're standing by him and the blind man and they say to Jesus, Jesus, can we take care of him, please? No, no, they don't say that. What they say is, who sinned? Did this guy sin or did his dad sin that he was born blind, because somebody has to have sinned, right? He's blind, and you don't get blind unless God is punishing you, and you don't get God punishing you unless you've done something wrong. Their worldview was, was baked in with this idea that, that only bad should happen to bad people, and that good comes to good people. You see it again in that Tower of Siloam moment, uh, the tower in Luke 13, it falls on 18 people, kills them. What does Jesus say to, to sort of like do damage control with these people? He says, those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No. But I tell you, unless you repent, you will also likewise perish. Implication, you guys totally think that that tower fell on those guys because they were jacked up and evil. But you're wrong. You're all jacked up and evil. Right? That's what he said. That's a, it's a message version. It's a paraphrase. <laughs> but, but, that's, but that was the, the mindset of the day. That was the worldview. It was hardwired into the Jewish way of thinking that suffering comes to sinners, not to saints. So your main mission in life was really to be moral and have your act together and, uh, and to make sure you stayed away from those people who were clearly not having their act together. And I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but our, our culture isn't exactly batting a thousand compared to the folks in Jesus's day, right? Like we live in a very calloused culture, y'all. Like if you don't believe me, just, just get on Twitter right now and thumb through it for like five minutes and then cry yourself to sleep tonight, right? Because it's so, it's so hard to find kindness and mercy out there. It's hard. Or get on iTunes. Do you know what the number one song on iTunes was last week? Number one song on iTunes. You know what it was? It was a track called Rap Devil by a guy named Machine Gun Kelly, entirely dedicated to decimating the person of Eminem because he felt dissed by Eminem on another song. That's the number one song in America last week. Do you know what the number one song in America on iTunes this week is? It's a song called, uh, where is it? Kill Shot by Eminem, which he just wrote as a response to Machine Gun Kelly dissing him for the track that he dissed him on because Eminem dissed him. 
It's an entire song that exists to destroy another human being. These are the two most popular songs in our nation today, right? Or, or get, on, uh, get on late night TV and, and, and watch one of the most viewed sketches in all of late night uh, right now is a, a show, is a sketch on Jimmy Kimmel called Mean Tweets, right? You know what it is. Don't act like you don't know what it is. <laughs> mean Tweets. What is Mean Tweets? Well, you might have guessed it. It's a bunch of celebrities reading mean tweets from people who don't like those guys. And they just read them out. And it's some of the worst stuff you've ever heard in your life. And it has on YouTube alone, hundreds of millions of views, hundreds of millions. Why? Because we love it. We celebrate mercilessness. We are a culture who doesn't know mercy. We're a world that doesn't know mercy. You know, when, when we were adopting uh, our son a couple years ago, our adoption agency, uh, one of the people there, uh, just kind of gave us a heads up and, and, and told us that the, the orphanages uh, in India are unfortunately some of the, the worst orphanages in the entire world. And so, I, you know, I, we asked them, what, why is that? What, what's the cause? And they said, well, it's their worldview. We said, well, what do you mean? Well, well in India, the, the dominant religious worldview is Hinduism. And, in, and, and the fundamental tenet of Hinduism is this idea of karma, right? That, that how I act in this life will affect me either positively or negatively in future lives as I'm reincarnated working my way uh, on to a better and better and higher state. And so the better I do in this life, the better my chances are that in the next life, I come back as a really important person or so on and so forth. But the worse I do in this life, the, the further I move down on the chain. And so you can imagine for a person who embraces a Hindu worldview to look at a, a crippled orphan with no mom and dad, what's their interpretive grid say that is? Well, they say that's a person who got it wrong in a past life. And what they need from me is not mercy. What they need from me is to let them learn their lesson. And so you find that the care in these orphanages, particularly the, the Hindu orphanages in India, is really terrible because their worldview doesn't allow for mercy. Now, now just contrast that with how a Christian worldview changes things. Did you know that in, in the first century, it was a practice in the Roman Empire um, to, uh, it was infanticide was a practice, they, especially for little girls. Little girls were, were not desired uh, in Rome. And so uh, moms and dads would leave their baby girls outside at night uh, to die of exposure because they weren't highly valued in Roman culture. And and there was only one group of people at the time coming around doing anything about it. And it was the Christians. It was this persecuted bunch of rebels in the society. And what they would do is they would come and they'd say, hey, if you don't want your baby, we'll take your baby. 
And what you saw happen was the early church uh, of these Christians, if you were to go into a worship service, it would have been filled with the singing voices of little girls because Christians moved toward them. They bent toward them with mercy because their worldview has that in mind. If you don't know mercy, you won't show mercy. But if you do know it, you'll show it. It's, it's true today even. Did you know, uh, I looked up some statistics on this. So Christians right now in America, Christians are the most adopting group of people in the US. According to ethicsdaily.com, according to adoption.com, all the stats agree that it's 5% of practicing Christians in the United States have adopted, which sounds low until you realize that that's more than double the number of all other adults who've adopted, like over double. So why is it, why, why is this one random group of people like bursting at the seams to adopt these kiddos that don't have a mom or dad? What, what is it? Why are they rescuing them? Because if you don't know mercy, you won't show mercy and the Christian knows mercy. Our worldview has it in it. Ephesians 2, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Verse four, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. How does Jesus get off calling us uh, to such extraordinary heights of compassion and kindness and pity and mercy toward one another in Matthew 5, 7? How can he call us to f forgive and not hold grudges against one another? How can he call us to do that from the heart? How does he get off doing that? Because he knows in 22 more chapters, he's going to extend to us a level of mercy that we couldn't even imagine. And it will change us forever. And he knows it. That's the only way you can embrace Matthew 5, 7 is because of Matthew 28. It's the only way you can do it. The only way any of the Beatitudes make sense is if you read the book of Matthew backward. You start at the end and you work your way back. And then all of a sudden it makes sense because you've seen the mercy displayed by our Savior. Do you see that? Does that make sense? Do you know what the key to being merciful is? I want us to, to just get our heads around what is that? A merciful person is, is driven by a desire to constantly retell the story of God's mercy to them by rehearsing it on others. That's all we're doing. When we're showing mercy, that's what we're doing. It's not mustering up some, some empathy. It's not that. It's rehearsing our story on others. When, when we go out of our way to serve our neighbors, 
the folks around us who maybe are, are lacking or are suffering, or maybe there's been a death, or maybe they don't have enough money this month and the lights are about to be turned off, whatever that might, might be, when we, when we serve our neighbors in that way, we're rehearsing our story. God, we're saying, went out of his way to come down from heaven, live as man on earth, to absorb all of my drama and problems and to care for my biggest needs. We're rehearsing our story. When we pardon our friends and those around us who have hurt us and wounded us and they don't deserve our forgiveness, what we're doing is we're rehearsing our story. We're saying, I have been a wicked person, hard-hearted against God, not loving him or his commands or anything, but God was rich in mercy toward me. He poured it out on me. And so now I'm ready to pour it out on you as a way to retell the mercy I've experienced from him. It's not white knuckling it. It's not toughing it out when we're showing mercy. All we're doing is retelling the story we've already experienced. Does that make sense? That's what we're doing when we're showing mercy. The merciful person is one who's constantly acting out the drama of God's mercy to us. And that's why it's impossible to be merciful from your heart unless you've met the mercy of Jesus. That's why it's impossible. Because if you haven't met the mercy of Jesus, listen, you don't have a story to tell anyone. What could you possibly rehearse? You have nothing to tell. You know, I said at the beginning that, that some of us, if we're not careful, we can get tripped up in the language Jesus is using here. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy because it can sound like Jesus is saying that we're earning mercy through our works. Blessed are the merciful for, right? Uh, they shall receive mercy. You are merciful, therefore you get mercy. But is that what Jesus is saying? That, that that what we're doing as Christians is we're meriting somehow uh, God giving mercy to us by being really merciful to others? Is that what he's saying? No, that's not at all what he's saying. If, if you've heard what we've been talking about, you'll know that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that the only people who can be merciful are the ones who truly experience the mercy of God in the first place. And if you've experienced God's mercy in the first place, you will live that out. So of course, it's true that it's only the merciful who will receive mercy because they've been receiving it their whole lives. You see that? If you've received it at the beginning, you will display it till the end. And when you display it to the end, you'll prove you had it in the beginning. Being merciful is not the fee for getting God's mercy. It's the proof that your fee has been paid. That's the difference. It's not the fee for getting God's mercy. It's the proof that your fee has been paid. And for some of us, it's so hard. Like, I, I, I don't want any of us to, to fool around. Like, I, I get it. We're, we're in a room. That it's just, it's hard, isn't it? Like to, to be a person who, who in the depths of who you are, you bend toward compassion to others, softness of heart toward others. Like you're quick to forgive. This isn't 
easy. And for some of us, it's, it's almost impossible. It feels so hard to forgive that person. Maybe as I'm even talking about forgiveness, for you, there is a person or persons that are coming up in your mind right now. Folks that have wounded you, like seriously hurt you. And now you have a choice to make whether or not you're gonna extend pardon. And it feels so hard. Maybe, maybe I don't know who it is. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a, a friend. Maybe it's a, a, a sibling or your kids. Maybe it's somebody at work. I don't know, but, but you're refusing to forgive them. You feel like you can't do it. Why is it that I can't pardon them? I just want you to consider this this morning, church. There's only two possibilities the Bible gives for why we can't show mercy, why we don't show mercy. Either you've forgotten your own story or you don't have a story to tell yet. But those are our only two options. If you're finding that you're harboring constant bitterness against people, that you're not extending kindness to those in need, that you're refusing to forgive those in your life who've wronged you, there's only two possibilities. You either have totally forgotten what your story includes or you don't have a story to tell yet. I love how, how Jesus helps us make sense of this issue later on in the book of Matthew. He gives us the, the sort of uh, picture of uh, blessed are the merciful in um, chapter five and then he illustrates it in chapter 18. And I'm just gonna read this parable, this illustration for us because I think it gives us some really helpful handlebars to understand what it looks like to pardon and why we do it. So you can just listen to this. It's Matthew 18, starting in verse 23. And this is coming on the heels of his disciples coming to him and saying, hey, um, how many times do I gotta forgive people, right? Seven times, you know, like seven times. He's like, try 77 times. And they're like, dang it. And then he tells them this parable. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now let's stop for a moment. That language doesn't mean much to us. What's a talent? Like, can he juggle? Like, what do you mean he's 10,000 talents? No, that's not what it's talking about. It's a, it's a form of money and it's a big form of money. Like, how big are we talking about? This is the debt that this servant owed the master. How big is it? This, I researched it, this would be the equivalent to 150,000 years worth of a worker's wages. Six billion dollars, roughly. That's, that's what this amount is. So just get that in your 10,000 talents, about six billion dollars, a bajillion dollars, right? That's what he's saying. It's a technical term. Verse 25, and since he could not pay it, go figure, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything, which is absurd. 27, and out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him his debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, which comes out to roughly about $12,000 in today's terms, which is not nothing. 
If somebody owed you $12,000, that's a debt, but it ain't six billion, right? And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So this fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I'll pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what, they had, what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, the master delivered him to the jailers until they should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now, what is the point of that? The point was that you and I should have zero difficulty forgiving our debtors when we realize that we can't even count high enough to realize the debt we've been pardoned by God. That's the point. We can only forgive in light of his epic forgiveness for us. And we can forgive everything horizontally when we realize the vertical debt that's been pardoned. And if you're struggling in this area of your life, the answer is not just try harder and tough it out. That's that's not the point of this sermon or this passage or this moment. The answer is this, remember your story. Remember your story. Remember the debt that you've been forgiven. Take time to recall to mind the the fines that you have racked up to a holy God and watch how he absorbs not just $6 billion of your sinful debt, but an infinite amount to the tune of the death of his infinitely precious son. The best thing that we can do today is sit and meditate on and remember the mercy of God for us, extended to us. Why would he do that? What kind of God does that, pardons that kind of debt? When you get that in your sight, it's incredibly clarifying when you're engaging other people in their sins against you because you realize anything I pardon here is like a hundred denarii compared to what he's done for me. And as you lean into this mercy, it will change you. It'll change you. I don't know if you remember the, the story last year of Rachel Dan Hollander. Uh, she's a Christian, she's a gymnast, uh, and, and one of 150 girls who testified against Larry Nasser last year uh, Larry Nasser was the former U.S. gymnastics national team doctor who is now uh, serving multiple life sentences, uh, being convicted uh, as a serial child molester. And Rachel came and testified against him at a sentence hearing. A man who had stolen everything from her, 
He had, he had stolen her trust. He had stolen her innocence. He had, he had violated her on so many levels and he had done it repeatedly with her and with literally 150 other people. And she takes the stand to testify in that moment and she looks to him. You can watch this online. She turns and she looks to him and she says this to that man. I pray that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. This is what the gospel does to people. It extends mercy to us in such a way that we now have a, a reservoir of mercy to dispense to everybody in our life. We've experienced so much kindness from this God, a God who we hated until he changed our heart. That how can we not give mercy away and retell the story of what he's done for us? This is how mercy changes us. And if you haven't experienced that today, if you're hearing this, you're like, I don't even, I've never even tasted of that. I just thought this Christianity thing is just me rolling up and, and trying to come to church and kind of get my life in order, get my family in order. Taste and see that God is good and his mercy is there for you this morning. It is there for you. Jesus stands to save you. Rich in mercy. He's brought you here this morning to taste his mercy. His nature is this. The Bible calls him the father of all mercies. That's who God is for us. And he wants to give it to you. So come this morning and receive it. Let's pray. God, I don't, I don't even know that I am experiencing one one thousandth of the joy of knowing that my sins have been forgiven, that you have pardoned. And we are your people gathered here this morning asking you for mercy to feel your mercy. God, we, we cannot do this. We have racked up a debt that we cannot pay. And we throw ourselves at your feet. Just ask you for clemency, for pardon. Have pity on us. We are the tax collector in the temple. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And if that's... If that's the cry of your heart right now, yeah, just where you're at, just confess that to him. Cry out to him. God, be merciful to me, sinner. If you know that mercy, this is a great time to thank him for it and to remember it. Where were you? before he came.
What were you like? What was your plight? How did he interrupt your suffering and your pain and the way that you pained others? How did he interrupt that with kindness and grace? I want you to do one more thing. I just want you to take a moment and, and maybe call to mind somebody that as you're reflecting on Jesus's words, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. That you're, you've been up to this point slow or unwilling to extend that to. I don't know who that is or if it's no people or 20 people. Would you just take a moment and bring them to mind? And thinking about the great debt that your Lord has pardoned you from. If you're willing, would you just pardon them in your heart? Prepare the way for you to actually extend mercy to them. Just take a moment and do that. God, this isn't easy. Wounds are real. I'm not saying they're not, but what we are saying is this, the wounds we've given you are even more. And you love us. So God, as hard as it is, will you help us to be absorbers of others' debt? Because we know you've absorbed ours. We love you, God. We just pray for all the grace in the world to be able to lean into this this beatitude because we do want to receive mercy from you. In Jesus' good name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.